Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined today by my BFF and co-pilot, Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, hello. Hello, Alex. You know what I was thinking about recently? Mm, what's that? It's the fact that we don't do one-on-ones anymore, but our one-on-ones are just this podcast. So have they really disappeared? <laughs> so Natasha used to report to me at Crunchbase News, and then I decided that that wasn't very good. So we came over here and now we're just colleagues, which is much more fun. But actually, our one-on-ones were kind of like the podcast, but with yeah. more profanity and rude jokes. Um, so 100%. you guys get the PG version. You're welcome. Lucky that <laughs> we were going to have our, our dear friend Marianne on the show today, but she is off for some family stuff. So it is going to be the two of us and we have one packed show. So we're looking forward to it. We're going to kick off with notes about how we've been sold to private equity because that finally happened. Then we're going to talk about private equity buying a Boston company that Natasha and I have both actually visited, though, at different times. Then we have a couple of notes on the huge Databricks round from earlier in the week. We're going to talk about hum capital and how startups are raising different types of money. We have IPO updates from Toast and Allbirds. It's going to be awesome, really. But let's kick off, Natasha, with our news, the local news, if you will. We no longer work for Verizon. We have officially been acquired by Apollo, which is a private equity firm. Actually, everyone who's listening to this right now is probably at work, but we're not because today we get a day off because we were acquired and Yahoo decided to be nice to us. <laughs> And if you're confused why Natasha is mentioning Yahoo, it's because that's the new name of Verizon Media Group, which was the renamed Oath, which was the unholy fusion of AOL and Yahoo's carcass. Previously, TC was part of AOL, and we've been kind of passed along to this point. So now we work for Apollo. Look, I'm just waiting for my Verizon company phone to stop working. And when that happens, I'll know this is kind of legit. I heard like backgrounds already changed on computers, which is some kind of poetic show of power by the, yeah, our that, new owners. That happened to me. I was confused why the top bar on my Mac was all of a sudden purple. Oh God. And I was like, what's going on? And then I clicked and I found the background of my Mac and it turns out it's now this big Yahoo splash. So there's irony to this because I went to Yahoo's offices way back when Marissa Mayer was the CEO. I had lunch there. I hung out with Drew who worked there at the time. And now I work there and I didn't ever think that was going to be the case. <laughs> so. It's wild. It's wild. I don't even want to hint about like my relationship with Yahoo over the years because I had such embarrassing email addresses. Like it was the first place that made me feel like I can open up an email. And so now I have like all these haunting addresses out there on the Internet. And I just don't want to think about my name and Yahoo in the same sentence. But it's happening and I'm happy to have a job. And I'm just going to point out that because our show is so packed, I am not going to torture Natasha into telling us <laughs> some of those embarrassing Yahoo email addresses. Let's talk about Vista Equity Partners and Boston, Natasha. Drift, a company that you and I both know, has sold, I think it's like the majority of itself to Vista Private Equity. And it became a unicorn in the transaction. So it's now worth more than a billion. But this is kind of like a partial exit, if you will. I'm surprised by this. You know, Drift is a company that I thought was doing very well. I know it had a kind of a serial entrepreneur founder. I recall it raising a bunch of money. What was your first impression of this deal? You know, I was actually wondering if it was an optimistic deal or just a deal that we should be looking into as a potential negative sign. My first reaction, though, was that it was a more positive majority stake sort of headline that I'm used to seeing. In the story that Marianne wrote, she mentioned Thrift having a majority owner in Vista. Vista itself focuses on backing enterprise software, data and tech businesses. So now Drift has like a closer partner, kind of how Brex goes to YC. It has like a close partner that will help get it to other customers. OK, eh. <laughs> I mean, that's to be clear, that's totally fair. and It's a reasonable point. And it kind of echoes what 
Gainsight said when it sold the private equity a while yeah. ago. Another deal that was kind of a head scratcher because, again, another startup that was growing well, had a CEO that uh, you know was well regarded. It was Nick Meta in that case. And then private equity. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're saying. Did the company hit a plateau and stall and therefore look to find an exit to someone who could provide liquidity and maybe some new direction? Or did it just find a price that it liked and sold a bunch of its stock because it could? Marianne wrote that it grew 70% 2020, expects the same this year for a company of its scale. That's great. So I I don't see any negative signs, but I can't quite uh, get it all to, to, to snap together like Legos in my head. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I'll add to is like their customers were really impressive to me when I was looking at them. So they have Okta, ServiceNow, Adobe and Snowflake. Those customers are all huge and growing companies. Maybe they're starting to be more competitive with Drift itself. For Uh, those who don't know, Drift is, I may butcher this, but Drift is trying to make like the e-commerce experience for B2B as good as B2C in a way. Conversational commerce. Yeah, Yeah. whatever that means. That was like their new focus. (laughs) That seems like a very evergreen focus for a company like Snowflake, for example. Get everyone to actually have like easy to understand conversations when selling the product. And so I would be surprised if Snowflake doesn't start to build that internally, thus edging out drift one day. I mean, that's a spicy take and I'm here for it. The company may still go public, has around 600 people, and the acquisition is expected to close in Q4 of this year. So it's not quite done. And I'll just say for anyone out there who's a real longtime equity listener, if you think back to the time we had Dan Premack on the show, we were camped out in the Drift offices. That was back in the Kate Clark era of equity. So no way. Uh, quite a ways back. Yeah, but they actually they lent us their, their podcast room, which was very kind of them. So kind of history. I, the, the gist here between the, the story about us and the story about Drift is that private equity is very rich right now. They have a lot of dry powder. They're making a lot of deals. And a change from you know five, seven years ago is that private equity is paying a higher dollar amount for software revenues. It used to be kind of like a way you would dispose of companies that were never going to go public, but now private equity will pay up for startup equity. And so maybe we'll see more deals like this. On the other extreme, we saw the Databricks news finally get confirmed. So Alex, run us through these big, really staggering numbers that show Databricks scale today. So every time we talk about Databricks, I feel like we just add a zero. <laughs> And uh, this is kind of one of those moments, Natasha. So Databricks put together not a $1.5 billion round, but a $1.6 billion round, a number that kind of went up in the time we were talking to the company about its kind of confirmed news because they added some more space to the round because everyone wanted in, right? That's, I mean, just another $100 million. Cute. What what can you do about it? (laughs) The other kind of insane fact here is that now Databricks is worth $38 billion dollars which is roughly up, I think, like $10 billion from its earlier valuation this year. You gave them the Twitter bio that they should now have in the story as well. You guys wrote that its new valuation represents a paper value creation in excess of $1 billion per month since their last known valuation. I mean, that, I think, is the story. It's kind of weird. So I've, I've been talking to the company for a while now, you know, here and there, getting to know the CEO. Basically, when a company reaches a certain size, they kind of pop up on my radar and they're like, we're going to go public eventually. We should start annoying Alex now. Right. And since then, the CEO, Ali Godzi, who's a, a lovely person, to be clear, probably has seen his net worth go up by like $5 billion. And it's strange because my net worth hasn't. <laughs> Crazy how you know? that works. <laughs> Crazy how that works. Mine's gone up by like $5, but I mean, not quite the same. But in their defense, they are growing very quickly. The company is now at $600 million in annual recurring revenue, going at about 75% a year. A little bit faster than Drift, but not crazy. But, you know, certainly a company that thinks it has a large future market to grow into. Do you want me to talk about what a lake house is or shall we skip that that bit? 
I have a question that I think is more interesting than the lake house bit oh, because good. I Let's can't talk about lake houses right now. <laughs> there was this idea that like when Snowflake went public, biggest IPO, and and now we have Databricks and it's in the similar world of data lake houses and warehouses and lakes. You know, you have the Snowflake example. What's stopping Databricks from just going public right now? I've been asking the CEO that for some time now. And uh, <laughs> what, he, what, what all he won't say is, ha ha ha, I don't have to. But I think that's kind of the gist, because what he's able to do in rounds like this, think about who is in this round, CounterPoint Global, Bally Gifford, UC Investments, the California kind of public system, ClearBridge. He is building a cap table, an ownership table mm-hmm. of long-term holders. Now, when you go public, traditionally what you would do is go on your roadshow, find patient capital, convince them that your business is great for the long term. And so they buy into your IPO and you have a great foundation of equity holders. Ollie's doing this like every six months while private because his company is so hot. I think every company wants to do this, which is stay private, but essentially raise money like you're public. And so he's getting his cake and getting to eat it, too, on the back of essentially just very strong ARR growth. Okay. what he'll say more is like, you know, we'll we'll do it when we do it. And we all know it's coming. Like you, you can't be worth thirty-eight billion dollars and stay private. Nor can anyone afford to buy you. Your answer so, is so much better. <laughs> I feel like the dilution aspect of it is what still confuses me. Like, isn't them raising so much also taking away his ownership stake, or am I missing something there? Well, think about uh, what they just sold. So they sold one point six billion dollars in stock at a thirty-eight billion dollar valuation. I think that's post money, but more or less, it's about four percent. So they sold four percent of their company. To move their valuation up by 10 billion from 28, it's about uh, it's a, it's a fourth, two and a half. I can't do the math in my head because I'm tired. But like they had an enormous up pricing for very limited dilution. So his stake was probably diluted somewhat. Okay. But the overall value of his equity shot up. And also, this means that all of their employees are now richer, all of their early investors are now richer. And eventually, when they do direct list, maybe I'm kind of thinking. They're going to be happy, happy campers. The question, though, is, you know, can they defend this valuation? Their ARR multiple is like 63x, so it's okay. pretty steep. They're growing quickly, so give it 18 months, and then I, I, they, they have to go public eventually. They will. You heard they, it here first, folks. Databricks is going to direct list in 16 months. <laughs> it's just going to happen. I, 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 if that's not the case, though, I'm not buying you lunch. I was just riffing, so. <laughs> um, shall we talk about a early stage startup and back into my world? Yeah, let's do it. So we're going to talk about... Returning to old school Wall Street, which I thought was a spicy, spicy headline. So tell us all about Hum Capital. When I talk to founders, I try and get them to talk to me about like their biggest dream ever, especially in the early stage, because you don't have too much to visualize at that point. And so when I asked Hum Capital CEO Blair Silverberg for his dream, he was like, it's funny, but I would love to help us return to old school Wall Street and how we allocate resources. Back in the day, for people who don't know, people would go to Wall Street, request funding for their project, such as like a railway line. A banker would then like chat through all the different financing options, analyze trade-offs and be like, here's the best capital for your business. Today, it's kind of the opposite, which is why Hum Capital is trying to help founders have better visualization into the other capital sources out there. I think a cute comparison, but also one that really, to me, clicked because so much of pitching to VCs these days is how do I make my startup look venture backed? Hum wants to make it the opposite. Your company's worth financing. In other words, it just might not be in X, Y, and Z types of capital. Yeah, I I do think there's a default to venture capital funding in the startup world. That's probably not the smartest thing. We've talked a lot on the show, gosh, over the last year or two about, you know, venture debt becoming more popular, revenue-based financing. My understanding here, Natasha, is that the, the goal with Hum Capital is for companies to come to it 
say, here's what we're doing. And then it'll kind of like automatically tell them, here are some funding options for them. So a company comes to HUM, it plugs into their system, and then HUM ingests over 100 different types of financial data from the company. That information is then given to the right now 250 investors that exist on HUM's platform. And so it takes out both parties from from interacting with each other directly. It's not like a marketplace or introduction place. It's more like, look at the numbers, investor. Do you like the numbers? Yes. Come meet the startup and decide if it's a culture fit. Does that make sense? Yeah. So instead of it being like Tinder, when you go around to VC firms and see who swipes right on you, it's kind of like a matchmaker in which you kind of give it your details and it goes, ah, here's the person for you or funding source in this case. Totally. So Hum Capital is the Yenta of startups. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. And the reason we're talking about them this week is because they raised a 9 million Series A. There's one quote that I want to mention um, and just poke a little bit of fun at. It was led by Steve Jurvetson's Future Ventures. Steve is also invested in SpaceX and Tesla. And so Hum's founder said that kind of pattern shows why Hum is an equally life-changing business, which I thought was very endearing to see as well. <laughs> I mean, talk your book. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny. It. I mean, obviously Hum Capital has a pretty cool approach to the market. It might do very, very well. We have discussed the plethora of funding options open to startups. I mean, it's not just revenue-based financing. Pipe is out there in the market as well. We've seen increasing convertible debt. I mean, the early stage market is now entirely safe notes equivalent. So eh, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of here for this. And I think anything that lowers the effective cost of capital for founders just is good because why should VCs get so much of the upside? So this makes good sense to me. Just as some other headlines in this mix, we also sure. saw Alad Gill raise an enormous fund as a solo GP. If you haven't heard of him, where have you been? He's been in like every single major deal. Zoom put together a $100 million investment fund and has now begun to invest out of that. And there's also a, a new fund in Africa called Lofty Inc. Capital. So there's just so much activity on the, on the money side of things. I'm curious to see how Hum will do in taking market share. Totally. I think the fragmentation to them is both a competitor and a complement to their business. It could be a place that every startup goes to to raise their series A, B, C, D, whatever. F, F, H, F, G, all of this. I. We used to joke that like series F meant you failed because you're still <laughs> raising money. But now I think series F is like middle teenage years for a startup. Yeah, so true. Uh, But speaking about startups that do eventually get big and do go public, hint, hint, Databricks, we have a couple of IPOs to talk about today, one of which is Toast. Now, Natasha, you and I covered Toast extensively last year, but from a very different news perspective. Totally. So they were one of the first companies we saw have the most dramatic layoff due to COVID. They cut about half of their staff through layoffs and furloughs. It was a very obvious reason why their whole business was about supporting restaurants in processing payments and handling orders. And as we all remember, for at least the first few months of the pandemic, that wasn't happening. Toast, similar to Airbnb, was one of the companies that really saw that clamp back. But now, months later, Alex, they have a completely different message. Things have turned around at the old Toast. I really wanted to make a very complex burnt bread analogy here, but I don't think I can pull it off. So I'm just going to move on. Self-aware. Self-aware. I was leading into it. I'm like, Alex, stop starting jokes on the show that you don't know how they're going to end before you start saying them. It's like the opposite of speaker training. We had speaker training this week and I didn't get high marks. It turns out I fidget and I wear the wrong headphones and I don't look at the right places and, and I talk too fast. Me too. Same thing I heard last year, actually. Anyways, Toast. So uh, to, to put into perspective how hard the pandemic hit them, in Q4 of 2019, they did about $204 million in revenue. 
in Q1 of 2020, it was 199 million. Then suddenly it dropped to 145. Now, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. It's only like a $50 million cut, but companies don't usually see their revenue drop by a fourth in three months. That, that, it's a shocking number. And if you're a startup that doesn't make money, seeing your losses go up and your revenue decline is pretty scary. So Toast cut a bunch of staff. It was a painful moment. And then things got a lot better. The company posted lots and lots of growth. In Q1 of this year, revenue scaled to $279 million. And then Q2, it shot up to 424. So they're doing great. I wonder if at all, and I don't know if this is like a healthy conversation to have necessarily, but like, do would they regret making those layoffs? I mean, the comeback was so fast after their initial drop, Alex. How do you predict that as a founder? It's just like a philosophical question that I'm wondering, did it come down to like a human decision or like a financial decision to cut these people in the beginning? I think you end up making awful decisions to protect the long-term health and integrity of the business. And that's maybe with my capitalist hat on. I think about Airbnb, right? Yeah. They also had pretty sharp layoffs and then ended up doing fine, but you just can't see the future. And if you think back to the early pandemic in the startup world, VCs stopped writing checks for a couple of weeks. There was fear in the market. There was, you know, everyone was talking about runway extension, not acceleration of spend. And so looking yeah. back, yeah, we can say, sure, they shouldn't have laid everyone off because, you know, six months later, they were going to be fine. You know, hindsight 2020 and so forth. It's I struggle to be too mean about it because I don't think they liked it. On a more optimistic note, it was cool to see in your story how you pointed out that Toast's choice to have multiple revenue streams made an actual big difference when it came to their recovery. So tell me a little bit about all of those choices that they made that eventually panned out. Yeah. So the, the insane revenue growth that we just kind of pointed out from the most recent quarter wasn't driven in majority by software revenues. And it wasn't driven in majority by hardware revenues or service revenues. It was driven by essentially fintech revenues. And do we usually see SaaS companies breaking into the payments world? It feels like everyone does the same thing sometimes, but like, why is that happening really? Yeah. So it's kind of like taking two bites of the same apple, because if you sell a company software, like let's say Natasha's awesome restaurant, and I'm like, cool, here's some software. It's a hundred bucks a month. You're like, okay, I can just about afford that. But if I was also like, now it's 500 bucks a month, you'd be like, ah, that's too much. But if my software offers you integrated payments and I take, I don't know, 1% of your total spend that your restaurant sees, I can have a much bigger business on my end. You don't get that mad at me and everyone's happy. So that's why vertical SaaS often takes payments as well, because it builds their total TAM, if you will. It's actually such a good argument because it's a sneakier or maybe more savvy way to make revenue. Um, <laughs> sneaky, savvy, you know, it's kind of plus minus. Yeah. But I mean, especially in the restaurant industry where like actually the razor thin margins of the restaurants themselves are just a well-known reality of their business. If you can find a way as like a SaaS company coming in to be more like simpler in how you pitch, it just is like a really smart business. I don't want to gas up toast too much, but I just think that there's such a fascinating needed company today. Yeah. I mean, I always find it kind of funny when I'm checking out any restaurant, I look now at the payment terminal and I'm like, whose revenue am I contributing to Me today? Me too. <laughs> That's so oh gosh, nerdy glad, of us. <laughs> I, I thought it was just me, but now I'm worried about both of us. So there's that. Um, now let's, let's flip it around a little bit and go away from the software world largely and talk about shoes. Natasha, do you own a pair of Allbirds? Yeah. And so do you, because TechCrunch gave us a pair for Disrupt last yeah. year. And I always get called out on it. Actually, when I'm walking around San Francisco, my friends are like, we get it. You work at TechCrunch. 
So the difference between San Francisco and Providence was just laid out there because one, no one here knows what all birds are. <laughs> and no one notices that the pair that I'm wearing have a TechCrunch logo on them. I have to say I was not sold on the shoes because I thought they were this trendy kind of Silicon Valley thing. I didn't want to get too close to it. And then I put on my pair and they're amazing. I love them. Super comfortable shoes. I wear them pretty much every day now. And we're talking about this because Allbirds is also going public and it is a very interesting company. It's a B Corp, which means it has a more social do-goody bent to it than your traditional kind of venture-backed company. And Natasha, it also talks about like its carbon footprint for shoes being lower, eh, but it's not that great of a business, kind of. Before we get into like the negatives, I think it's impressive that it was founded in 2015. Like has these really grand ambitions as the New York Times pointed out. The whole choice to go B Corp is a differentiator. Probably its biggest differentiator is how much it is focusing on sustainable shoes. I think in the world of D2C where you don't have too many historical wins to point to in the public markets, thanks to Casper, it's there's an optimistic flair of it just being a more sustainable company. I really do think the Casper IPO really kicked the shins of every D2C company out there because when Casper went public, it had to like cut its IPO price and then it suffered from there. And I think that did chill the waters a little bit for D2C. However, Allbirds, a couple of numbers. I was being too unkind earlier. It has scaled to immense revenues. It did 219.3 million in revenue in 2020. And it grew from essentially 93 million in the first half of last year to 100 and roughly 18 million in the first half of this year. So it's growing. It just the issue for me is it just loses more money as it, as it grows. And that's the opposite of operating leverage. And it makes me sad. But I mean, certainly the brand is big. And, and you know, as it moves into other kind of categories of, of apparel, if you will, it does have growth potential. I just don't like to see companies lose more money as they get larger because that's not what's supposed to happen in business. Allbirds was one of the D2C companies that was part of the wave of raising a lot of venture funding and being like this really well-capitalized giant. And now I'm wondering, will Allbirds revenue results trickle down to early stage D2C startups that maybe are like, maybe we shouldn't be venture backed. Maybe we shouldn't rely on venture capital as much as this company did. There's one company, Alex, I don't know if you've heard of them, Adams. Oh, I have heard of Adams. Yeah, they're, they're also shoes, right? They're another shoe company starting with A, which must mean something for SEO or I don't even know. Adams is to like Allbirds, like Third Love is to Victoria's Secret in a way. Like it's focusing a lot on sizing as its differentiator. It believes that People have different sized feet, so we should be selling in quarter sizes. Allbirds is sustainability, Adams is sizing, and Adams is an early stage seed company. So that was my first company I thought of when I was reading about Allbirds, not so great S1. Well, uh, oh gosh, I know we're going to get emails about this. It's perfectly fine. The company's going public. It's going to be worth some large amount of money. Huzzah. We've also seen Warby Parker file in the last couple of weeks. So we do have two kind of leading D2C companies going public. And, you know, going back to the Casper example, they could set the alternate kind of narrative for D2C, if they perform well and investors kind of welcome them in the public markets, it could change the tune a little bit. We will have more notes about Allbirds over on the TC website as time goes along. One to keep an eye on. And we're not going to talk about Freshworks. We're not <laughs> going to talk about Amplitude. Two other companies that have also filed to go public. And that's one reason why I have bags under my eyes, because it has been a very, very busy week. We've only gotten through the last week, thanks to coffee. And yes. uh, our final little kick out today is about Compound Foods, which, if I understand correctly, is making coffee sans beans. That's a headline that we don't see every day. They just raised $4.5 They are going to be using synthetic biology to create coffee without coffee beans by extracting molecules. And I don't really have much more other than it's a reaction to coffee being a very polluting crop. And so... 
seeing them trying to find like an alternative is kind of like the meat alternative rise, but now for coffee. That's like my butchered yeah. way to explain it. <laughs> well, you and I are not molecular biologists, nor are we food scientists, nor do we synthesize things from non-beans. But I will say, given how much coffee I have consumed with you or like in the same room as you through our working life, we are contributing to some climate change issues. My only totally. kind of beef with compound foods is that I'm worried about like, if I move all of my purchasing of coffee beans away from where I currently buy them, which is often this roastery near my house that supports small coffee growers, I'll be essentially taking my spend away from these small businesses and I'll be giving it to a venture back startup, which doesn't make me feel great. But I do like the idea of lowering my carbon footprint. That makes me happy. Totally. This is me being a little PR-esque, but maybe it complements pre-existing offerings instead of replaces them at least until one day where they have their own stores all over the world. I could totally see it being offered at SF coffee shops and people wanting to buy it, um, especially those who care about the environment or are willing to spend a couple extra bucks to show that they do. Yeah, I wonder if like Blue Bottle will try it out because I have spent obscene amounts of money buying small amounts of espresso from Blue Bottle over the years. And I would definitely try this out there. I mean, that's that's where I already have my wallet out and I've already decided to become poor thanks to yeah. my coffee habit. So why, why not do it there? The, sorry, the one last bit is like that I want to ask you about is like coffee is one of those things that everyone is snobby about. And so I wonder if people are going to be open to it because I feel like it's one of those like food groups, drink groups that everyone has a take on. And technically you can still call it coffee because there's no official regulatory definition according to the story. And that actually really matters because there's a lot of beef in the food world about alt meats and what they're called. And some states are actually trying to determine like what you can say is what, which to me just smacks of lobbying dollars from big ag tech firms trying to be like, <laughs> no, it's not a real cow. You can't call it a burger. Pipe down, everybody. The, the planet's <laughs> on fire or on underwater at the same time in the United States. So let's, let's try harder. And it turns out, Natasha, this story taught me a lot, actually. One cup of coffee requires 140 liters of water along kind of its, its growth chain, which is an enormous amount of water. That means that I'm torching like, uh, how much coffee do I drink per day? My machine makes 10 cups at a time. Oh my so God. that's 1,400 liters. Of, oh my gosh, I'm killing the planet. This does not make me feel great. I feel like we should have had a different story to end the show on but yeah I we're supposed to have a fun thing to end the show <laughs> producer team and instead what you've done is made me depressed and full of self-hatred and that's a wrap i guess <laughs> yeah and that's equity oh as, as a note before we go i'm i'm not here next week goodbye i'm gonna be asleep or playing crusader kings 3 or variously not answering my texts so if i owe you an email too bad it didn't happen i'm gonna nuke the inbox when i get back i tried and uh, with that, that's equity. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs> We're doing good. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. 1,400 liters of water. That is crazy. Yeah. I feel so bad. Ooh. I mean, small reminder <laughs> that like 1% of corporations are responsible for like 70% of carbon emissions. <laughs> but that was Grace scary. with the life lesson at the end of the draft. You really sunk that in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>